Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be back at uh, Central, and uh, I think this is my third time, uh, Jason, so thank you for, uh, for having me back. Uh, we have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to launch right into it, and I'm going to speak quickly, which is really too bad, because this is a highly academic lecture you've chosen to subject yourselves uh, to not knowing you were getting what you were, uh, you were getting into. Uh, but I'm just going to launch uh, right in because of the shortage of time. Uh, one's knowledge of natural law, like all knowledge, begins with experience, but it does not end or even tarry there. Knowing in any field of endeavor, whether it's in science or just in your common sense everyday lives or in ethics, is an activity. It's an intellectual activity, the activity of knowing, to be sure, but an activity nonetheless. We all have the experience of knowing, and it's not just collecting information. It's the active use of the mind. Uh, we all have the experience of knowing, but to know is not merely to have an experience and then have the experience recorded somewhere back there in the brain. Knowing, rather, is a complex and dynamic activity. And again, whether that knowing is in some scientific field or historiography or sociology or just getting through the day doing your normal uh, activities. The role of experience in the activity of knowing is to supply data on which the inquiring intellect works in the cause of achieving understanding. Insights in any field or just in ordinary daily common sense activities, insights are insights into data, data that are supplied by experience. So then, what are the data supplied by experience that are at the foundation of what Aristotle called our practical judgments? And by practical, he doesn't mean pragmatic. He means our judgments with a view to acting, for example, in ethics. What are the insights then, and this is all that means, what are the insights that constitute our knowledge of natural law? something that was believed in by the ancient Greek thinkers, by the medieval Christian thinkers, by the Reformation thinkers, by the Enlightenment thinkers. It's a concept that rolls around in people's consciousness today. They've heard of the concept of natural law, but most people don't know what it refers to. They know that it played an important role not only in classical philosophy, but in the development of Christian theology. But what is it? All right, now let me try to explain. In our experience, of, for example, true friendship, we all have the experience of having true friends, we grasp by what is ordinarily an effortless exercise of what Aristotle called practical reason, the intelligible point of having and being a friend. We understand that friendship is desirable not merely for instrumental reasons, to be invited to the best parties, uh, to get contacts that might give us a new job or a promotion or something like that. Indeed, a purely instrumental friendship would not be a friendship, right? We would, we, would, we would just be using each other, maybe with no injustice, maybe we're happy to do it, but that's not a friendship. A real friendship is when we desire the good of the other for the sake of the other, when we know that the other desires our good for the sake of our good. Because we grasp the intelligible point of having and being a friend, not just for instrumental purposes, but for its own sake, and we understand that the fundamental point of friendship is friendship itself and not some extrinsic goals to which friendship is a means, we reasonably judge that friendship is intrinsically valuable. That is to say, we understand friendship, among other things, but certainly friendship is one of those things that is a constitutive 
and irreducible aspect of human well-being and fulfillment, and precisely as such, friendship provides a reason for action of the sort that doesn't require any deeper or ulterior reasons or subrational motivating factors for its intelligibility, which is to say simply that friendship is one of the basic principles of natural law. It's one of the basic principles of natural law because it's a fundamental and irreducible aspect of human well-being and fulfillment. No matter how rich and uh, flourishing you are in other dimensions, you're really smart, you're really healthy, you're really virtuous, if you didn't have any friends, you'd still be missing something. In the same way, even if you had a lot of friends and you were really smart and you were virtuous, but your health was really poor, you would be missing something. There would be a respect in which you were not flourishing, even though you were flourishing in other respects. And these different fundamental respects in which people are flourishing are the foundational principles of natural law. It's a lot simpler than people think. Let me give you another example. Let's shift our focus to the activity of knowing. So we're going to now just look at what we're doing right now, trying to learn something. Our minds are being active, right? You're listening. You're not just taking stuff in. You're thinking along with me. You're trying to follow the argument. You're testing and saying, yeah, is that right? Is what he's saying true? We're trying to learn something. In our experience of wonder and curiosity, of raising questions and devising strategies for obtaining correct answers, of executing those strategies by carrying out lines of inquiry, of achieving insights, which is the goal of all thinking, we grasp the fundamental, intelligible point of searching for truth and finding it. Again, whether in the sciences or in historiography or in sociology or in ethics or in just our everyday activities when we have to figure things out in order to accomplish our goals. We understand that knowledge, though it may have tremendous instrumental value, is intrinsically valuable as well. To be attentive, well-informed, thoughtful, clear-headed, careful, critical in one's thinking, judicious in one's judging, is to be inherently enriched in a key dimension of life. It's better off than being inattentive, dull-witted, stupid, prepared to believe the last thing anybody told you or the last thing you read in the newspaper. That's not the way you want to be. You want to be attentive, sharp, critical, and so forth, because we grasp that, the activity of knowing, as a basic aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings. Like friendship and, another, and, a, and a number of other activities, knowledge provides a reason for choice and action that doesn't require for its intelligibility uh, as a reason, any further or deeper reasons or subrational motives to which it is a means. To say all of this then, to identify these basic principles of practical reasoning, these basic principles of natural law from which all other reasoning, including ethical reasoning, uh, uh, depends, is to say that our knowledge of natural law, our knowledge of moral truth, our knowledge of the well-being of human beings is not innate. It doesn't swing free of the data provided by experience. Even when it is easily achieved, practical knowledge, knowledge of natural law, is an achievement. It's an event, a temporal event. It's something that happens. Or perhaps it would be better to say it's something that one does at a point 
in time. It's an activity, a human activity, that we achieve by virtue of acting. It's the fruit of insights, which like all insights are insights into data, data which are supplied by experience. The insight, the knowledge that friendship or knowledge itself is intrinsically humanly valuable is ultimately rooted in our elementary experiences of the activities of friendship and knowing, things we all do. Apart from those experiences, there would be no data on which the mind could work to yield an understanding of the intelligible point and thus of the value of friendship or knowledge or virtue or the acquisition of skills as in ballet or football or chess or any of the other basic goods of our human experience, any of the other basic aspects of human well-being and fulfillment, any of the other basic principles of natural law. Now, of course, not all knowledge is moral knowledge, though all moral knowledge is practical knowledge in Aristotle's term again. It is, or centrally includes, that is to say, knowledge of principles for the direct guidance of action. All our thought about what to do begins from our grasp of the fundamental things that are worth doing, having or being a friend, pursuing knowledge, developing skills, becoming virtuous, uh, worshiping God, the things that are at the foundation of all our thought because they are the basic aspects of our well-being and fulfillment. Yet knowledge of the most fundamental practical principles directing our human action toward the basic aspects of human well-being and fulfillment and away from their privations, though not strictly speaking knowledge of moral norms, is foundational to the generation and identification of moral norms. That's because moral norms are principles that guide our actions in line with those first principles integrally conceived, norms of morality like the golden rule of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, or the Pauline principle that you shouldn't do something in itself evil, even for the sake of good consequences, uh, or uh, the norm that you should be fair in dealing with uh, others, or the principles to get more specific of the Decalogue, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, or very, very specific moral norms like don't hit your sister. All of those are specifications of the integral directiveness, that is the directiveness as a whole of the basic aspects of human well-being and fulfillment. Norms of morality just are entailments of the integral prescriptivity, the directiveness of the various aspects of our well-being considered together. So the first principle of practical reason or natural law, Aquinas says, the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas says, that the good, knowledge, friendship, justice seeking, worshiping God, developing skills, the good is to be done and pursued and the bad is to be avoided. Act for the sake of health, stop smoking, eat a better diet, get some exercise, act for the sake of health and act to avoid disease, sickness, being unhealthy. But if that's the first principle of natural law, then the first principle of morality, which refers to the basic principles of natural law and represents their specification, is that one ought always to choose and otherwise to will in a way that's compatible with a will toward integral human fulfillment. So, the natural law view of morality is fundamentally humanistic, not in the sense of being atheistic. The, the, the word humanism 
has a deeper and older meaning than, uh, than, than atheism. So we have, for example, the tradition of Christian humanism represented by figures like Erasmus and uh, Thomas More. It's humanistic in the sense that it understands morality as serving the human good, not detached from it, not abstracted from it, but serving the good of human beings. Why does God want us not to kill, not to steal, not to commit adultery? Are these just abstract, arbitrary rules? Could God tomorrow say, I changed my mind, commit adultery. I changed my mind, steal, kill. No, having created human nature, the human good, as God has, God being good, being God, wills the fulfillment, wills our good. So morality is connected to the human good in the natural law tradition, taken up into uh, the Christian uh, tra uh, tradition in, a, in an integral way. There's no sense in which morality is away from the human good or independent of the human good. It's about the integral directiveness of the basic aspects of human good, the basic aspects of human well-being and uh, fulfillment. And just as the first principle of practical reason is specified, as Aquinas says, by identifying the various irreducible aspects of human well-being and fulfillment, friendship, knowledge, aesthetic appreciation, skillful performances, religion, and so forth, so too the first principle of morality is specified by identifying the norms of conduct that are entailed by a truly open-hearted love of the human good, that is, of human persons, the people whose good it is, taken as a whole. Now, as you see, natural law theorists understand human fulfillment, the human good, as variegated. There's not just one human good. There are many distinct and irreducible aspects of human well-being and fulfillment. Now, this is not to deny that human nature is determinate. One of the things, one of the ideas that natural law theories and the natural law tradition are notorious for is believing that the human good is determinate, that human nature is determinate against postmodern or deconstructionist schools of thought these days that claim that there is no determinate human nature. So to affirm the variegated nature of the human good, that there are many different human goods, not just one human good, is not to deny that human nature is, to, uh, is determinate. It's to affirm, uh, to affirm that though determinate, our nature as human beings is complex. And let's just look at some of the basic ways in which we human critters are complex. We are animals, right? We hate to admit that at some level, right? But we are physical, biological organisms. We are animals, like other animals, but also unlike other animals, because though we are biological, we have to take on food, turn it into nutrition, we have to sleep and so forth, Though we are animals, we are rational animals. Our integral good includes not only our bodily well-being, for the sake of which we might stop smoking, eat a better diet, go to the gym and so forth, but also our intellectual well-being, our moral well-being, having a good as opposed to a bad character, trying to be more like Mother Teresa and less like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Uh, our spiritual well-being, because we're capable, we human beings, in ways that I'm going to describe in a few minutes, of exercising powers that are self-transcending. In other words, we can exercise free will. We're individuals, but friendship and sociability are constitutive aspects 
of our flourishing. So the human good is the good of human beings, and human beings come as individuals. But notice that some aspects of our well-being and fulfillment are inherently social, inherently. That is, we're not just using each other as means. The communion that we have with each other, where we treat each other as ends and not as means only, is itself fundamental to our all-round flourishing. By reflecting on the basic goods of human nature, especially those most immediately pertaining to social and political life, natural law theorists like me propose to arrive at a sound understanding of principles of justice, including those principles we call human rights. And here we see the move from fundamental ethics, which is just about individual personal behavior, to the domain of the social and the political. So natural law thinkers begin with just reflection on what makes an act of an individual person right or wrong. And then we try to move from that, not, not because we want to get away from it, <laughs> but because then the next question is, well, what about institutions? What about societies? What about when we act as a group? And that question is the question of what is just and unjust? What is for the common good? What is contrary to the common good? What is in line with and respectful of human rights? What's a violation of human rights? Now, in light of what I've already said about how natural law theorists understand human nature and the human good, it should be no surprise to learn that natural law theorists typically reject both strict individualism of the sort of Ayn Randian libertarian school and collectivism or socialism. Individualism overlooks the intrinsic value of human sociability. The fact that our flourishing includes understanding our relationships with others as intrinsically and not just instrumentally what you can get out of it, valuable. Uh, so it tends mistakenly to view the dignity uh, of human beings atomistically. We, we, we depict human beings as just atomistic uh, seekers of their own satisfactions. Collectivism, however, to go to the other thing we reject, compromises the dignity of the human being by tending to instrumentalize and subordinate the individual and his or her well-being to the interests of larger social units. And so Mao Zedong famously says, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And of course, the eggs are the heads of the people who are victimized. Uh, the, uh, the, the kulaks under Stalin, all the victims uh, under Hitler who were sacrificed for the sake of the collective good. You know, the future communist utopia, the fatherland, uh, whatever it is. Individualists and collectivists both have theories of justice and human rights, but they are, as I see it, highly unsatisfactory. They're rooted in important misunderstandings of human nature and the human good. Neither can do justice to the concept of the human person, that is, a rational animal who is a locus of intrinsic value and as such an end in himself who may never legitimately be treated or treat others as a mere means, but whose well-being intrinsically includes relationships with others and memberships in communities beginning with a family in which he or she, as a matter of justice, has both rights and responsibilities. Human rights exist if it's the case that there are principles of natural law, principles of practical reason, directing us to act or abstain from acting in certain ways out of respect for the well-being and the dignity 
of persons whose legitimate interests may be affected by what we do. Now, I certainly believe that there are such principles. So I've been an outspoken person, uh, served in offices uh, in, in the cause of advancing human rights. I believe there are such things as human rights. Some Christians worry about the language of rights, including the language of human rights. And there are reasons to worry. I mean, some people think they're only rights and no responsibilities. They talk only about rights, not about responsibilities. There's a rights inflation. So any, anything anybody wants, they'll claim I have a right to. Uh, desires are actually not rights. I mean, it's not, you don't establish a right to something by wanting it. Uh, still, uh, I think there are human rights, and we can be disciplined and rigorous in our thinking about them. We can avoid rights inflation or, or suggesting that people have rights but no responsibilities and all that stuff. To say that people have human rights is to say that there are certain things you can't do to them or certain things to which they are entitled and those things cannot be overridden by considerations of social utility. We're not allowed to break heads, to break eggs, even to make an omelet, the magnificent future utopia or what have you. At a very general level, human rights direct us in uh, Immanuel Kant's famous phrase, to treat human beings always as ends and never as means only. Now, when we begin to specify this general norm, we identify important negative duties, such as the duty to refrain from enslaving people. Just take a non-controversial, was once controversial, but what is today an uncontroversial example of a human right. We would all agree there's a human right not to be enslaved. If you're practicing slavery, you're violating people's rights. A, a society that permits slavery or runs a slave system violates human rights. Now, when we be, um, uh, although we need not put the matter in terms of rights, it's perfectly reasonable and, I believe, helpful to speak, for example, of a right against being enslaved and to speak of slavery as a violation of human rights. Now, those Christian thinkers uh, like uh, Joan Lockwood O'Donovan, uh, who just want to eliminate the language of rights from Christian discourse because they're worried about its being attached to a kind of radical individualism, to suggest that people only have rights and not responsibilities. Uh, people like uh, Professor O'Donovan uh, rightly point out that you could describe the moral situation purely in terms of obligations and never use the term rights. So we could condemn slavery with great power, never referring to the right not to be enslaved. It could all be in terms of the duty not to enslave others. You could just banish rights from the, from the language. Um, but I think that, uh, that the language of rights is helpful because what it does is, is causes us to look at the duty, not from the perspective of the person who, whose duty it is, but rather the beneficiary of the duty. The beneficiary of the duty is the person who has a right, for example, not to be enslaved or not to be sexually trafficked or not to be lied to or not to be uh, uh, one of uh, Mao Zedong's eggs that's broken to make an omelet. Um, to say that there are such negative rights, rights that other people not do certain things to us, uh, is to say that these are rights people have not by virtue of being members of a certain race or class or ethnic group, but simply in virtue of our humanity. That's what it means to say that there's a human right, that it's a right you've got just because you're a human being. That's what it means to say it's a human right. You may be a cognitively disabled human being. Uh, you may be a human being who is in a coma. Uh, you may be a human being who has Down syndrome. 
But if there's such a thing as human rights, there are rights you have no matter what just because you are a human being. Now, there are, in addition to negative duties uh, and their corresponding rights, also positive duties. Certainly Christians recognize that. There's, there's the thou shalt nots of the Ten Commandments, and then there are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the, and so forth. Those are the positive uh, rights, and these too can be articulated and discussed in the language of rights. Though here it's especially important that we be clear about by whom and how a given right is to be honored. Sometimes it's said, for example, that education or health care is a human right. You've heard people talk that way. You may have spoken that way yourself. Now, it's certainly not unreasonable to speak that way. Uh, but if we're going to speak that way, let's recognize that much more needs to be said if that's to be a meaningful statement and not just a bit of windy rhetoric. For example, if you're going to say that there's a positive right to education or a positive right to health care or whatever, then it's incumbent on you to say who is supposed to provide education or health care to whom. Why should those persons or institutions be the providers? What place should the provision of, say, education or health care occupy on the list of social and political priorities? Is it better for education and health care to be provided by governments under socialized systems or by private providers in markets? or by some combination of the two? Now these questions are critically important questions and are not answered simply by an assertion, there's a right to healthcare, there's a right to education. And notice also that these questions go beyond the simple application of moral principles. They require prudential judgment in light of the contingent circumstances people face in a given society at a given point in time. Often there is not a uniquely correct answer that applies in all times and all places. We certainly believe that on the question of slavery, just to take an example of a negative right, there's a correct answer in all times and all places. Back when we had slavery, we were wrong. It wasn't right back then. It was wrong back then. People didn't realize it was wrong, at least a lot of people didn't realize it was wrong, but it was still uh, wrong. But when it comes to the provision of positive things, even if people are owed them by right, we have all those questions that I was talking about, and the possibility of honoring the right in a variety of different ways. There's only one way to honor the right against slavery. Don't have a slave system. Don't own a slave. Don't sell people and so forth. But there are different reasonable ways of providing education or providing health care. Uh, and prudential judgment is required to choose in the contingent circumstances, in light of the history and traditions and so forth of particular society, that people in that society are facing. The answer to these questions of prudential judgment, in each case, can lead to further questions and the problems can become extremely complex, far more complex than the issue of slavery, just to stay with my example here of a negative right, where once the right has been identified, once we believe there's a right against slavery, its universality and the basic terms of its application are pretty clear. Don't do that, like don't hit your sister, don't own a slave. Everybody has a moral right not to be enslaved and everybody has as an obligation, uh, as a matter of strict justice, an obligation to refrain from enslaving others. Governments have a moral obligation to respect and protect the right and correspondingly, 
to enforce the obligation. Now, what I've said so far uh, should provide a pretty good idea of how I think we ought to go about identifying what are human rights. But in each case, the argument has to be made. So with respect to any particular right you would ask me about, I would have to tell a story of why I believe that truly is a right and what its boundaries are. Or I'd have to explain to you if you think something's a right and I think it's not, I'd have to explain to you why I think that's actually not a right. Maybe something people want, it may be something people desire, but it's not a right. And the story would be told one way or another, the analysis would take place in light of the moral principles, which are specifications of the basic principles of natural law that we identify as the intrinsic aspects of our human well-being and uh, fulfillment. Morality, again, being about the well-being, at the end of the day, about the well-being of human beings. Now, one basic human right that almost all natural law theorists would say belongs in the set of rights is the right of an innocent person not to be directly killed or maimed. You go back as long, at least, as the Christian tradition and actually into the classical world. And this is a right on which all natural law theorists believe. If you're an innocent human being, then you have a right that your death not be made the precise object of someone's act, getting you dead, whether because someone hates you uh, or because getting you dead might accomplish some goal, might be the means to accomplishing some goal that you want, like recovering on your insurance policy or something like that. And this is a right that's violated when someone makes the death or injury of another person the precise object of his action. It's the right that grounds the norms against targeting non-combatants, even in justified wars. That's why in the Christian tradition and the Western tradition more generally, there's a, such a thing as just war theory. We actually don't believe that all's fair in war. We might think that about love, but we don't think all's fair in war. You can't be targeting innocent uh, non-combatant uh, civilians. Now, that's not to say that it is never justified to perform an act that might, as a side effect, have uh, damaging effects on others, so-called collateral damage, including taking uh, lives. But that's a distinct question of when it's justified to accept the death of an innocent person as a side effect. That's not controlled by the norm against intending, whether as end or as means, someone's death because of what you want to get out of it. Uh, the natural law understanding of human rights I'm here sketching is connected with a particular account of human dignity. So this lecture is about natural law, God, and human dignity. I skipped God for the moment, forgive me, but I'm going to come back. <laughs> now I'm going to skip right over to uh, human dignity. Uh, under the account of human dignity that is consistent with this theory of natural law, the natural human capacities for reason and freedom are fundamental to the dignity of human beings, the dignity that's protected by human rights. The basic goods of human nature are the goods of a rational creature. That is, a creature whose nature is a rational nature, a creature who, unless impaired or prevented from doing so, naturally develops and exercises capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice. Deliberation, judgment, and choice. Now these capacities, stay with me now, these capacities are, I mean this literally, God 
like, albeit, of course, in a limited way. We're, we're not God. He's got those capacities in an unlimited way. Ours are limited, but the fact that they're limited doesn't mean that they're not God-like, these capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice. In fact, from the theological vantage point, these capacities constitute a certain sharing, again, limited but real, in divine power. This is what is meant, I believe, by the otherwise just utterly puzzling biblical teaching that man is made in the very image and likeness of God, right there in Genesis 1. After all, what could it mean? What could it mean to say that man is made in the very image and likeness of God? When the Bible says that, does it mean that God has five fingers on each of two hands and hair on his head and a nose? No, God's a spirit. So what does it mean? How is it that we're made in the image and likeness of God? What's God like, if in a limited way, about us? Well, even if one doesn't recognize biblical authority or believe in a personal God, it's still true, and I would argue in the end undeniable, that human beings possess, just as a matter of empirical observable fact, a power traditionally ascribed to divinity by believers in God, namely the power to cause things that one is not caused to cause. The power to cause things, as God does, that one is not caused to cause. God is not caused to create the heavens and the earth, or man, or Eve. Those are free choices made by God on the basis of God's free judgment, but intelligent judgment, that it would be good. And God creates, and da-da-da-da-da, he sees that it is good. Of course, he knew it was good. He didn't, it wasn't an experiment. He could grasp the intelligible point, the value of creating this, of making this choice, of doing this thing, and act not like a demiurge, not like a, you know, an ancient Greek conception of a kind of demiurgic divinity, just on a kind of impulse, but rather on his own free will, God's free, to uh, create. It's the power to envisage a possible state of affairs, to grasp the value and thus the reasons for bringing that state of affairs into being, and then to act by choice and not merely on impulse or instinct like a brute animal, to bring it into being. Now that state of affairs may be anything from the development of an intellectual skill or the attainment of an item of knowledge to the creation or critical appreciation of a work of art to the establishment of a friendship or even a marriage. Its moral or cultural significance may be great, it might be Michelangelo sculpting the Pieta, or far more commonly, comparative, comparatively minor. We go through the day every day deliberating and choosing, using our intelligence, using our minds. What matters for the point I'm now making is not whether it's some grand achievement in any particular case or some minor thing, what matters is that it is a product of human reason and freedom. It is the fruit 
of deliberation, judgment, and choice. The exercise of these literally, albeit limited, literally godlike powers. Now, of course, a further question will present itself to the mind of anyone who recognizes the godlikeness of our capacities for rationality and freedom. Capacities that are immaterial, by the way, in nature. That question is whether beings capable of such powers could exist apart from a divine source and ground of their being. Now I get to God. So one finds in the affirmation of these powers a ground for the rejection of materialism, and one discern the materialism and the idea that there's everything in the world is just material. They're, 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 everything is the product either of material or efficient causation. There's nothing beyond that. And one discerns the basis of an openness to and even the roots of an argument for theism, theism of the classical uh, sort. If you believe, really believe, in human reason, in freedom, in the godlikeness of our deliberation, judgment, and choice, if you don't think we're just automatons, even if we don't know it, if we're automatons, then you've, you've eliminated the possibility of reductive materialism being true. You, you've, you've already carved out space for the exercise of powers which, insofar as they are not material, cannot be reduced to the material, can only be described as spiritual. The medievals understood perfectly well that our intellectual powers, our intellective powers, as they would put it, were spiritual powers. They were not material. They're spiritual powers. Now, what is the authority for this view of human nature, the human good, human dignity, and human rights? Am I just pulling this out of the Bible? Well, natural law theorists are interested in the intelligible reasons people have for their choices and actions. We are particularly interested in reasons that can be identified without appeal to any authority apart from the authority of reason itself. So natural law theories are, properly speaking, philosophical theories. They are not theologies or theological theories. Now, that is not to say that they're incompatible with theological theories. And historically, the Christian tradition, East and West, Protestant and Catholic, once you had the Reformation, all embraced natural law doctrines as part of a larger uh, religious uh, understanding. So it's not to deny that it's often reasonable to recognize and submit to uh, religious or other authority, legal authority, for example, in deciding uh, what to do and not do. Uh, indeed, natural law theorists have made important contributions to understanding why and how it is that people can sometimes be morally bound to submit to and be guided in their actions by authority of various types. But even here, the special concerns of natural law theorists, as natural law theorists, is with the reasons people have for recognizing and honoring claims to authority. We don't think you can simply appeal to authority to justify authority. We think if you have, if you're truly under authority, you should be able to give reasons for believing that you're under authority. The authority can be justified. One might then ask whether human beings are in fact rational in anything more than a merely instrumental sense. Can we in fact discern any intelligible reasons for choices and actions? Well, everybody recognizes that some ends or purposes pursued through human action are intelligible, at least insofar as they provide means to other ends. For example, people work to earn money, and they're doing so as perfectly rational. You need money to 
get through life. There are things you need to buy. You need to feed yourself. You need to clothe yourself and your family. You need to have a roof over your heads. The question is whether some ends or purposes are intelligible as providing more than merely instrumental reasons for acting. In other words, are there intrinsic as well as instrumental goods? I opened by trying to demonstrate two of many. Friendship itself, which can never be reduced and still be friendship to purely instrumental purposes, just using each other. The pursuit of intellectual knowledge, which can have great instrumental value, but can also intelligently be pursued for its own sake. You might be interested in learning, studying, reading Shakespeare, not because you want to get a job as a Shakespeare scholar, not because you want to be able to show off at cocktail parties by quoting the bard, but just for the sake of appreciating the grandeur, the achievement, uh, the wit, uh, the wisdom uh, in the plays and uh, sonnets. Now, of course, there are plenty of people today who embrace philosophical or ideological doctrines that deny the human capacities that I maintain are at the core of human dignity. They adopt a purely instrumental and non-cognitivist view of practical, non-cognitivist just means that the mind doesn't play any role in it, and argue uh, that the human experience of deliberation, judgment, and choice is illusory. And if you want to opt for materialism, this is where you have to go. You're, so my old pal at Oxford with whom I had many lunches and drank many coffees, Richard Dawkins, will have to argue that uh, uh, sure, we perceive ourselves as we go through our day as if we were rationally understanding things and then choosing freely on the basis of our reason. We could have done otherwise. But we make the rational judgment that we're going to do this, and we exercise our will in order to do this. We're not just being pushed around by forces of efficient and material causality. But Dawkins has to argue, since he wants to save materialism, that that experience we have is an illusion. We're not really choosing. We think we are. We have to think we are to get through the day. But it is an illusion. Uh, the ends are purpose. The ends uh, uh, people pursue, they insist, are ultimately given by non-rational motivating factors, such as feeling or emotion or desire. That's what Richard uh, Dawkins thinks we get pushed around by, these internal compulsions or internal uh, uh, subjective feelings, emotions, and uh, des desires. Um, I think that's uh, all wrong and can be shown to be wrong. I've written a book about it. Uh, <laughs> Since I have four minutes, I'm not going to try to summarize my book. <laughs> uh, OK, I, I do have to say one more thing, though. Now, if I and other natural law theorists are correct in affirming that human reason can identify human rights as genuine grounds of obligations to others, how can we explain or understand widespread failures to recognize and respect human rights and other moral principles, including by Christians in Christian societies and so forth? Well, as human beings, we are rational animals, but we are imperfectly rational. We all know that. We are prone to making intellectual and moral mistakes and capable of behaving grossly unreasonably, uh, irresponsibly, especially when deflected by powerful emotions, self-interest, passion, that run contrary to the demands of reasonableness. Christians and Jews have a name for this, sin. And there's another name, fallenness. We suffer weakness of will and darkness of intellect. We don't know perfectly what the right thing to do is all the times, and sometimes, even when we know what the right thing to do is, we lack the will to overcome the temptation not to uh, do it. Uh, 
Um, even when following our consciences, as we are morally bound to do, we can go wrong. A conscientious judgment may nevertheless be erroneous. Now, of course, sometimes people fail to recognize and respect human rights because they have a self-interested motive for doing so. In most cases of exploitation, for example, the fundamental failing was moral and not intellectual. Jefferson knew slavery was wrong. He was like a really smart guy, and he was thoughtful, and he said it. He said, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. He was talking about slavery. And yet, he was a slave owner, unlike Washington didn't free his slaves even uh, in his will. Um, in some cases, though, intellectual and moral failures are closely connected. Selfishness, prejudice, partisanship, vanity, avarice, lust, ill will, and other moral delinquencies can, in ways that are sometimes quite subtle, impede sound ethical judgments, including judgments pertaining to human rights. Whole cultures or subcultures can be infected with moral failings that blind numbers of people, large numbers of people, to the truth about morality, about justice, about human rights, and ideologies hostile to those truths will almost always be both causes and effects of those failings. Consider, for example, the case of slavery in the American South. The ideology of white supremacy was both a cause of many people's blindness to the wickedness of slavery and an effect of the exploitation and degradation of its victims. And notice, to make things even more difficult for us human beings, more challenging, uh, oftentimes we'll not only not see that what we're doing is wrong, we'll think that what we're doing, although in truth it's wrong, we will convince ourselves it's actually virtuous. We, have, we will transvalue, uh, value is to use that uh, phrase of Nietzsche's. Uh, finally, question of God and faith in natural law theory. Most but not all contemporary natural law theorists are theists, mostly Christians, but also some Jews and Muslims. They believe that the moral order, like every other order in human experience, the natural order, the order of nature, the order of logic, uh, the order of what Aristotle called techne, the order in which we bring efficient means to bear to uh, achieve preordained ends, getting a bridge built or a highway system. They believe that the moral order, like all of these other orders, is what it is because God creates and sustains it as such. In accounting for the intelligibility of the created order, they infer the existence of a free and creative intelligence, a personal God, the God of classical theism, the God of ethical monotheism, the God of Jews and Christians. They argue that God's creative free choice provides the only ultimately satisfactory account of the existence of intelligibilities humans grasp in every domain of inquiry, ethics, but all the other domains as well. Natural law theorists don't deny that God can reveal moral truths, and most believe that God has chosen to reveal many such truths. Certainly all Jews and all Christians who are also natural law theorists believe that. However, natural law theorists also affirm that many moral truths, including some that are revealed, can also be grasped by ethical reflection, even apart from revelation. They assert with St. Paul in the letter to the Romans that there is a law written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles who did not know the law of Moses, a law the knowledge of which is sufficient for moral accountability. So the basic norms against murder and theft, for example, though revealed in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue, are knowable even apart from God's special revelation. That's what's known by the Gentiles who, even though they don't have the law of Moses, it's, to use Paul's metaphor, written on the heart, it's accessible to the mind. 
The natural law can be known to us and we can conform our conduct to its terms by virtue of our natural human capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice. The absence of a divine source of the natural law would be a puzzling thing, just as the absence of a divine source of any and of every other intelligible order in uh, uh, human experience would be a puzzling thing. An atheist's puzzlement might well cause him to reconsider the idea that there is no divine source of the order we perceive and understand in the universe. And, and many former atheists who have come to religious faith have come exactly in that way. It's far less likely, I think, to cause someone to conclude that our perception, for example, of our powers of deliberation and judgment and choice, that our perception is illusory or that our understanding is a sham. And with that, I will let you go to church. <laughs> Thank you.